again and we are now live right so we made it there's always that kind of panic but it's all working very well um welcome to lunch at live uh, episode 25 which is pretty incredible to think that last year it was just a a quick 10 minute idea to tell you about my experiences in kenya but yeah we're here with uh, 25 and as you may well hopefully have seen um, we've got actually a live conference happening in october um on the 30th and 31st in brighton in the uk um which with 10 speakers 10 i mean like i say the joy of the podcast is i can invite and chat to whoever i like which is just fantastic kind of ego trip and power trip but this conference has been i've invited 10 speakers who um who i've supported and and loved and cherished for kind of like sometimes in some cases up to kind of 10 years so yeah it's finally come together um if you haven't seen the information then just look on any of the websites or just go direct to runchatlive.com uh one of those speakers um is going to be with us today uh, mr simon bartold um if you know anything about or have any interest in uh, the research on uh, footwear running shoes then you should in theory already know the name simon bartold you can't really get by looking into the history of shoes without seeing the history of Simon Bartold. So um, if you already know about him, this will hopefully be a fantastic opportunity for you to listen to um, his wisdom for the next um, hour. If you don't know about him, well, you're going to have a fantastic journey through um, what we love, the evidence behind uh, running footwear. Um, there's probably very few people out there who, who have got as wide a knowledge and experience we're talking about, as I said in the advertising, 20 years working for ASICs, um, recently headhunted by um, Salomon um, and headed their road running selection, as well as four Olympic Games. Well, it's huge history, as you would expect. And a really nice bloke as well, being Australian and all that. So um, without further ado, what I will do is I will bring him up. We'll have a quick five second countdown um, and I will you'll be able to get a chance to say hello to legend himself. Here we are, Mr. Bartold. G'day, Matt. How are you? <laughs> it's always that panic. You're going to go. <laughs> I'm just not going to hear nothing coming out. Yeah, with a headlight mine, it's probably better if it was just really <laughs> not not <laughs> modest as ever. Modest as ever. So, um, oh, for so many reasons, I have to say thank you. We could spend the next hour just saying thank you. I know you've, you're where are you at the moment in Antwerp, is it? Or I'm in Antwerp at the moment, yeah. And you've been traveling since? Uh, yeah, I. I, I well, you can hear from my voice. I've got air traveler's throat, but I um I can't. Yeah, I think I I think I hit Europe. Uh, I, well, I hit London on Tuesday, I think, and I then proceeded to dump with rain for the next three days, and then I was up in Dublin, and now I'm now I'm down in Belgium. So, oh, yeah, so I really yeah. appreciate it. You, uh, you do sound like you're about to to fall. So uh, if you do need just to go to sleep for a while, I'll just talk over you. Just try no, and stay I on cam. I feel fine. It's just the. Uh, it's, it sounds like I've been smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey, which I can promise you I haven't. But uh, yeah, kind of uh, sounds that way. Which probably takes us nicely to um, your earlier days, your youth, where I'm sure you started doing exactly that. Um, we're talking about we're going back quite a long way, aren't we? I don't want to make you feel old, but when did you? Where did it all start? When did you graduate? Go on, say the year. Uh, well, well, I. I I started out life as a zoologist, actually. So my uh, my, my real passion has always been uh, animals and um, bugs and stuff like that. So I actually went to uni and did a double degree in zoology and physiology. And uh, of course, as a result of, of that, I was eminently unemployable. Like you basically, I wanted to go and work for the the CSIRO, which is the like the 
the main organisation in Australia, but basically you had to wait for somebody to die before you could get a job there. So that wasn't all that, that, wasn't all that good for me. So, so my dear old dad said, why don't you have a look at podiatry? I said, what? What are you talking about? I thought he'd gone mad. But uh, as it happened, um, that's what happened. And uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a pretty wild ride, I have to say. It's been incredible. So what year? Did you mention the year then? I didn't mention the year, no. <laughs> Was that deliberate? Am I not allowed to old, ask a, an old podiatrist how old he is? So I graduated from podiatry in 1981. Wow. So I've been, I've been around for a while. See, this is tricky because I'm always harping on about, probably over harping on about logical fallacies and kind of like the 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 idea that if something's old, it must be telling the truth. Because we know in our profession, it's not always the case. <laughs> but there's also this rule that there's a kind of a contradiction to every rule. So that's you, I guess, because, yeah, you've been here for a long time, but you've seen a lot of changes, haven't you? And you've kind of rolled with it and probably said things you regret in the past. Is there anything that stands out, actually? I like trying questions you weren't expecting. So is there anything you remember saying in your youth or in the earlier days, which at the time you thought, yes, 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 and now you think, oh, my God, what was I saying back then? Oh, look, too many to mention, really. I mean, <clears throat> you know, because as you point out, things have changed. And, you know, you think of all the things that you believed in uh, back in the day and that you and that you peddled to your patients and, you um, you know, I look at it now and I think I'm kind of horrified by all of that and think, gee, but, but, you know, the point is that people shouldn't actually hide behind that because that was that was the knowledge of the day. That's that's what we knew and that's what we thought we knew. Um, and that continues to that to this day, doesn't it, Matt? I mean, you know, there's stuff we're probably saying now that in two years' time we'll look back and think, why the hell did I say that? So, uh, you know, it's probably not true. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's healthy to hear, for younger therapists to hear you saying that who's been in the game for so long because one of the the kind of obstacles I think that when when younger therapists hear this new information um, and probably some of the stuff which you're going to say today there's that kind of reaction of oh no I'm not I've, I've spent thousands of pounds on on this education this certificate and now you're telling me I have to throw it all away and start again no 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 it can't be right this is kind of like fear but we're not saying it's never a case of throwing it all away is it it's just a case of tweaking slightly or not putting as much emphasis no, on no not at all I mean I saw I saw something really interesting posted Yesterday, I don't know whether it's Greg Lehman, it was somebody, and it was on the hype cycle. I don't know whether you know about the hype cycle, but it's a very interesting thing where basically you have you have an idea that takes you to an expectation, and then you have this 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 incredible dip in the graph where you have what's called the valley of disillusionment. And you know, this is this is typically what happens with with us as we go through university and we think we come out of uni, we think we know it, and we go and practice our profession, and then suddenly we get very disillusioned. But, but what actually happens with the graph is after that peak and that trough, if you're, if you're any good, you actually come back up to a point where you have like a, a linear graph that continues for many years because you do start to understand that nothing's cast in stone and that it's very healthy to question ideas. And, um, and you, you must read and you must attend conferences. And if you don't do that, then you're never really going to be a decent clinician. So I, I think that, that, to me, that really sums it up and illustrates it very well definitely yeah and i remember seeing it i think it was actually it was greg layman's partner in crime on their podcast it was uh none other than mr adam meekins um and i think it was an interesting post of his as well because i don't think he swore or kind of slagged anybody off during that post he just kind of made a point which was interesting to see he's the only man in our industry who may have a, a similar or, or equivalent beard to you uh yeah but oh let's not go into who had it first but yeah yeah, yeah that's true yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah similarly luxury i would have thought but I think um, I thought you were going to compare him to kind of you in your former days because you still, but I think I've heard you in the past saying that one of the reasons you've had such an illustrious career is you weren't afraid to speak your mind and kind of like, 
race just kind of ruffles some feathers i don't know whether i ever actually said that i, I did actually get asked by sneaker freak once um you know what my job was at, at asics and i said well i'm the bullshit detector and that's that's a that's a, t- that's a title i actually carry with some pride because i still sort of see myself in that in that sense to some degree yeah yeah and that's kind of like sometimes i worry it's become too much of a thing but all this kind of myth busting and kind of like calling people out and stuff um it's, it seems like there's an awful lot of therapists doing that these days slightly older therapists but i always think yeah. it's you've got to have that humility because like you said the stuff we're going on about now in a year's time might kind of be the evidence might not be there or might be less so you've got to kind of be careful haven't you yeah look i think that i think in this day and age there's there's a very fine line between trolling and and being um being used constructful constructively useful um you know i think that you can actually put alternative ideas forward without actually having to put people down on their ideas and you know i mean some people I, I, it, it, interesting discussion we could actually have matt about you know the relevance of clinical experience versus the academic side of things which i always think is a major there's a major disconnect between the two i've just been to a podiatry conference which was very academically driven and of virtually no clinical value and um you know that that's a bit of a problem because when you've got academics saying well actually nothing you do has any value or any basis in science that that's some, that's i've got a bit of a problem with that actually it's very true yeah and it's something well you can talk about maybe you can talk about whatever you like because i'm I've, I've you know my money's on whatever comes out of your mouth is going to be useful so what was it i mean this conference in particular give us some examples then uh, so they had an epidemiologist there and, and she basically stood up and said well orthotics don't work stretching doesn't work um extracorporeal shockwave therapy doesn't work medication doesn't work cortisone doesn't work and you know I mean, I read a lot of literature because it's what what I do for a job these days, and I know that this can I know this great conflict in the literature. But my point would be, well, maybe we don't have the evidence in the literature for all of these things, but we do actually have a bunch of people who, for whatever reason, and it might be placebo, it, I don't know, but who, for whatever reason, consistently get very good results and do follow things up properly and do retest, do test and retest. And I, and I think that's quite interesting because we're, we're not – the big gap here is we don't have very good quality clinical research being published. Um, we, we just have a bunch of people who are doing systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and that's, that's useful. But, you know, I just put together a seven-hour workshop on shin pain, Achilles pain, heel pain, and knee pain, and it nearly bloody drove me mad because for every paper I could find – that was supporting one theory, I could find another paper that was completely bagging it. This is current literature, 2019 literature. And it's just like, what do you do? What do you do? Um, and that's, I think, where the clinicians should actually be coming in and saying, well, we've got this, it's clinical research, but we've got this series that we've run, like Jack Taunton, you know, that we've run over 20 years. And we can show you the data that that intervention A is actually having good outcomes with condition b and i i think that's there's a real gap there somewhere and i don't know how to get over that yeah it's definitely a part of the challenge and there is a lot of we know this isn't true this isn't true this isn't true this isn't true and 
it's part of the era we're in i suppose but we've got to make sure that there's also advice for younger therapists as well well yeah this isn't true but try this try this try this obviously it gets a little bit kind of negative negative anyway so um i'm hoping that people tuning in for this i mean one of the ideas behind one chat live is there's going to be information which the, the the therapist can pick up and use but also runners and triathletes it's kind of that middle ground which i think sometimes is a problem with the there's no communication like you say it's all too academic and, and patients aren't going to understand it or vice versa sometimes runners and patients it's a little bit too simplistic and they need a little bit of education so we're talking about shoes um yep. I, originally i wrote it up like the future of shoes which is what you're going to be talking um about at the at the conference in october which is great but i suppose to look at the future of shoes you've got to really understand the past of shoes and and where it's all kind of changed yep. um I'm always conscious and I always worry that we're kind of bringing up old news because I, I think we all live in our bubble. We're kind of followed and follow people who are singing from the same page. But I went to a company online who I've, I've, I won't mention any brand names, but I just looked at their how to find a shoe um, and just be interested what, you know, this is a big brand and what the, uh, the runners are going to see when they look at it. So, I thought one way we could look at what's happening now and, and maybe dispel, here I go again, a few myths, is have a look at what came up. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up this little picture here. Um, for the people listening to the podcast, I will, don't worry, I'll describe what's going on. So all we're doing is we're looking at, well, at the moment we're looking at a picture of Mr. Simon Bartold looking at a shoe, um, which we will probably talk about later on. Um, lots of information uh, where you have been myth-busting and kind of trying to set the record straight for a lot of years which makes this even more problematic. So what we've got here for people listening is uh, I've scrubbed out the name of the brand, but it's a shoe finder online. Okay. It's a massive big brand and um, it's uh, you need your shoe, then follow this route. And as soon as you click on it, it divides you up into, are you a man, a woman or a child, which kind of, I suppose makes sense. Um, we could stop and talk about the difference in injuries between or potential injuries between women and men, but we, we might come back to later, later on. The next thing is it asks if you're going to road or trail. Um, which is good okay obviously there's probably a difference in the type of shoe you're going to need depending on whether you're going to be running road or trail so we may well talk about that in a little bit as well um, it talks about mileage okay so happy days probably if you're going to be training for a marathon then you're going to be putting more mileage in ramping that up quicker so maybe we would consider another shoe we could come back to that but then it all kind of falls down and this is where i'm going to bring simon back in because page four of this regardless of the questions they've asked is are you an overpronator, an underpronator, a severe overpronator, or neutral? Um, and that, before they suggest a shoe, is where the, the person reading this, the runner, is going to have to choose: um, does their arch fall down? Does it stay up? Um, Simon, let's bring you in. What um, what's wrong with all about that? Uh, well, you know, Matt, it's all about definition of terms, isn't it? Really, I mean, I'd go back two slides and say, well, I want a definition between road and trail as well. Um, because because my definition would be if you can drive a vehicle on it, it's a road. And um, there's a hell of a lot of people who say they go trail running when they're actually road running. And in terms of how you choose the shoe, in terms of how you choose the shoe, that's actually quite important, isn't it? But if we get if we get onto this, you know, look, this is the issue, mate. I mean, this whole model of looking at the frontal plane is complete knackers as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we know. We know from the vast body of literature that you really can't match a shoe to a foot type, foot type based on its frontal plane position. If we look at what is really interesting is can you 
do something like this and look at sagittal planes. So could you, would it be more um, relevant to look at, dare I say, because it's quite controversial, but would it be more relevant to be looking at stack heights and drop and maybe come up with 30 to 36 variations of um, how you might um, try to identify the need of a shoe for an athlete? It would seem to me that's a lot more useful and a lot more predictable and a lot more appropriate than what we're seeing on the screen now. Because the bottom line, is, as you well know, is what is your pronation? Well, I don't understand that sentence anyway. It sounds very American, but th that's a great question. What is your pronation? The answer is nobody knows. Nobody in the world knows. Nobody can define it. There is no, there's no way we can say how much is too much. There's no way we can say how much is too little. Um, and, and therefore, if you're amortizing that to the stratification of shoes for motion control, stability or cushioning, well, it doesn't make any sense at all. You just can't do it. <coughs> yeah. Problem. I mean, so to make it clear, because I mean, every time I think it's getting a bit better, I I mean, this is the first time when I knew you were coming on, we were talking about shoes. I thought, let's have a look at what the major brands are kind of putting out there. And just when I thought that I'm hearing less runners coming in saying, oh, I know what the problem is, I pronate, me thinking, yeah, I know you pronate, that's how you managed to walk from the door to me here now. But whilst this stuff's online, so are you saying, and this is a leading question, but any gate analysis, and I use the term gate analysis kind of in inverted commas, which is based on how much you pronate is, is looking at something that's irrelevant? Yeah, absolutely. And also it could it could potentially lead you to the exact wrong decision. I can give you a good example of that. So I've got a video of a fellow, a patient I saw many years ago, and the video the video is called Death by Pronation, because this guy this guy is literally walking with his with his navicular dragging on the ground. So you've never seen a more pronated individual. And I showed this especially I'm not picking on retail here, but I show it especially to, to retail, but I've shown it to many podiatrists and physios as well. And say, so, well, what would you put this guy in? And they all say, well, we put him, we put, have obviously put him in a motion control shoe because he's so pronated. And I say, well, would it surprise you to know this bloke didn't come in to see me with an MSK injury? Yes, that would be surprising. Would it surprise you to know this guy's chosen sport was basketball? Yes, that would be surprising. Would it surprise you to know that this guy played basketball for Australia in two Olympic Games and he never had an MSK injury? Never. And now you're telling me that you want to put him in a motion control shoe, but actually he's pronated at his end range of pronation. So he's right at his end range and he has no range through supination pronation. So his absolute requirement is for cushioning. And if you put him in a motion control shoe, you'll probably take this non-injured athlete and you'll probably injure him because you haven't understood what's going on. So that, that's, a, that's, that's the best example I can give you of how this whole issue of focusing on the frontal plane becomes irrelevant in terms of its link to injury because we know there is no link to injury. Um, there's a suggestion, but there's no absolute link. And also the, the, the suggestion that you could that you could prescribe a shoe that would accommodate that, it's very difficult. Okay, people. So, I mean, I remember kind of saying similar stuff. I made a lot of enemies. Well, not real enemies, but a lot of shoe shops wouldn't talk to me or mention my name maybe I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago when I first kind of started. Because I remember talking about the same thing. I think, I mean, I definitely remember doing gait analysis and looking to how much they overpronated inverted commas. We didn't sell shoes at the time. But I remember using the terminology and suggesting this might be a problem, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but then I think for, in my case, it was probably 
I think it was probably Ian Griffiths actually was one of the first conversations I had. He's another speaker at the conference coming up. Um, I'm sure you were saying it at the same time, if not before, but it was Ian who I came across. I remember having a conversation because I remember using the term pronation slightly differently when I was doing my kind of strength and conditioning. It was the National Academy of Sports Medicine and they were referring to kind of the combination of movements which is involved in deceleration. And it was kind of, I was arguing with, with, with uh, Ian who was very much the, the term should be struck from our language as no such thing. And I was like, yeah, but if, if the body's not able to actually decelerate properly and he's going, yeah, that's different though. You're talking about kind of the moment, you're talking about the ability to go in and come out. And the term overpronation suggests that you're traveling too far, that there's actual a line where once you cross that, like you say with a basketball player, then you're going to get injured. And that's the issue, isn't it? There is no line. There's no norm. You've got your basketball example. You've got Haley Geber Selassie is one I use in my workshops, which again is an N equals one, but it's not really because there's plenty of examples of elite athletes out there who, if you froze them on their mid stance, then that medial arch would be, like you say, touching the ground, a bit dragon. But we forget yeah, about them, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a much it's a much bigger question, really, because you could look at, um, um, you know, you could look at Tiki Galana and you could look at the way she runs. And it would be a brave person that actually changed the way she ran because she won the gold medal in London in 2012. So she's the best female marathon runner in the world. But but she's got this horrible style. So it, it's, you know, when you start changing these things, it, it, it does become quite quite difficult but you know the biggest problem for us in relation to footwear is that there is this suggestion that somehow you can apply this magical product and it is going to make a difference to it and and I think I actually predated Griff because at great expense in in July of 1999 I made a video with the words motion control being flushed down a toilet with sound effects so that's a long time that's a long long time ago right so that's how that's how long I've been rabbiting on about this for, and, and finally we seem to be getting some traction with this. So people are actually understanding that, yeah, it's not it's not about whether you pronate or not, or not. It's about what are your aspirations as a runner. Um, to, you know, and most most runners want to get they want to get faster, they want to get fitter, they want to get stronger, um, they want to develop technique, and so the whole thing falls down because running is like any other sport it's an aspirational thing so you shouldn't stay in the same shoe anyway so you know no matter whether you're pronated or not as you develop as a runner and you lose weight and you get faster and you get stronger and you develop technique your product the thing you're wearing on the end of your, of your foot should actually be changing because you're not the same runner you were when you went into the running shoe store to lose weight a year ago yeah that's no, very true this is yeah i remember chat i was chatting to jf Esculia the other day um and we were talking about the same sort of thing he actually he came up with something which stopped me a little bit in my tracks which i love the opportunity of talking to great minds like him and, and yourself although maybe you guys disagree in a little bit but um i i was talking about um variability and, and i mentioned i can't remember who the test was by but remember that um that uh, study which was suggesting that rotation of shoes would reduce injury risk a little bit and i think we all made quite a big deal about it at the time showing that it was proof that you should vary your shoes and he came out and said, like, yeah, but if you keep varying your shoes, then you're not. I mean, the idea is if you keep applying the same load, yeah, it could lead to injury. But unless you keep applying that same load, your body's not going to get sufficient stimulus to adapt and get stronger. So he was kind of more he was like, if you can, you need to stick to that same shoe so you can get stronger or at least have one main important shoe. And I was like, yeah, I can see what you mean there. Comments? Oh, I, I I completely agree with him. I mean, I think I'm not suggesting that you should be um, you should be changing your shoes all the time. I'm suggesting that if you are somebody who starts off as a novice runner and you're 
two stone overweight and assuming that you run for 12 months and you do not get injured and you've lost two stone and you've developed technique and you've got faster i'm suggesting that see the problem the problem we have Matt, is that people go into a store and the assistant says well i see you're wearing the kano 25 here's the kano 26 proceed to the cash register you know mm -hmm. it just it shouldn't work that way um so i think that you know i quite often get asked why runners get injured and i love i love telling people well it's because they get up in the morning they put their shorts on they put their running shoes on they walk out the front door and they turn right and they always turn right and if only they turn left two out of their four runs well then they're doing what jf says they're varying them they're varying their, their routine their terrain their surface their camber on the road and and that's you know that's really really helpful thing to do for a runner that's a really nice idea i like that that's, that's so beautiful sometimes in life you just got to take a left mm -hmm. brilliant that's that's really nice i'm going to use that i might credit you i might not um <laughs> so okay well let's take it down to again with the with the um layman in mind with the runner so and this is where it gets difficult i mean okay you've got your shoe shop you've got that guy coming in or that girl um you're not going to give them a gate analysis to see if they overpronate or not no 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 how are you going to find a shoe for them? What would your uh, tests be if you were there? Um, <clears throat> well, I probably would. I probably would still have a look at them running. But I think the really, the really um, key thing is that if you just, if you just do a, a, an analysis from behind, well, then obviously you're, you're missing seventy-five percent of the stance phase again. So you, you really, you've really got a fraction of the, of the whole picture. So all you're going to do, you know, there's no excuse these days. You've got night. You can do it on your phone. Look at them from behind. Look at them on the side. Look at them from the front, and then you've got, you know, you've got a, a lot of changes. So you can look at transverse plane deviation, as well as frontal plane, as well as sagittal plane. You can look at how the the shoe is interacting with the foot. In other words, is the foot sitting correctly on the platform, which is actually quite important? Um, is it moving from one side down? They're they're very basic things you can do. Then I think you can filter in things like the comfort filter, which is good. And the noise filter. So how, how noisy are they when they're running this shoe? Is it slapping? There, there are really simple things like that you can do that will give you some clues. And I, I think it's probably a process of three or four shoes, and you'll probably have one obvious outrider, and you'll probably have another shoe that's obviously not as good as two others. So you have two that are probably quite equal, and then the decision will come down to the comfort filter and the noise filter. So ultimately, the athlete is going to say, well, there is one that actually clearly feels better than the other. And I think that that's that's terribly simplistic, isn't it? But I think what actually happens um, is that people get pushed into a product that is um, what, what the retailer or the clinician thinks is best for them. And they walk out of the store or the clinic and they think, well, actually, this thing's really uncomfortable and I don't like it at all, but it must be okay because I've just paid 90 pounds for an opinion, so I've got to wear it. And I, and I think that's actually where the system falls down a bit there. I think that happens quite a bit. Um, so that that would be my sort of homespun philosophy on on easy things you could do to try to make a decision. Yeah, I think the other difficult with comfort is, I mean, like JF said, the idea behind comfort is not so much that comfort's definitely going to reduce injury, but it means the runner's going to get home, they're going to get a run, get some consistency, enjoy their running. All these factors, you know, are probably going to reduce the chance of them getting injured. But it's tricky yeah, look, paying a hundred bucks for to be comfortable, isn't it? Often runners need a little bit more science behind it if they're going to spend that well, sort of money. 
Yeah, I think if you follow that, I think if you follow that algorithm, that basic algorithm of doing a basic gait analysis, and you know, if you've got somebody whose feet are pointing on backwards, well, then clearly they need some sort of intervention. But um, you know, I think I think that when you look at okay, well, I can get a basic idea for where I think they should be within what the brands offer, um, and we'll get on to how that should be changing in a minute, but. I've got a bit of an idea in my mind for, for three or perhaps four shoes that might offer something to this athlete. And then we're going to look at whether it's slappy. So what's the, you know, this this ubiquitous term ride, what's the ride of the shoe like? I mean, is it is there an obvious issue with the way this is transitioning from wherever you strike to propulsion? And then is it comfortable? Because if it's bunting in the forefoot or your heel slipping, that shoe's never going to perform properly for you. Um, because to a large degree, Comfort is not this sort of esoteric thing that I think we read a bit about. I think comfort is a performance-related feature because if the shoe doesn't fit properly, it won't work properly. So comfort is all about fit to a large degree. Mm. Uh, I think that's terribly important. But, I mean, basically what we have to get over here is we have to get over the terrible lies the industry has been telling for 40 years that somehow somehow you can solve all problems by either having increased cushioning or by having motion control, and that's simply not true. Yeah, and it's tricky, isn't it? Because uh, you've got these other facts, haven't you? Chances are that the team in the shoe shop are going to be maybe 17, 18 years old. They haven't got the life experience. They haven't got that much mileage in their feet, probably. They haven't experienced injuries. They don't know what it's like. It's, it's, it's very tricky. I heard something the other day when I was doing a little bit of catching up on the many, many things which you've said in your time. It was about vibration. And it was about how that's... Um, um, how the attenuating a vibration thing is a big thing in shoes. And it's something that often the market misses because it's concentrating more on kind of the kinematic factors. Could yeah. you go into a little bit more of that? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something that Ben O'Nig's been banging on about for quite some time. And, and it, you know, he's sort of been studiously ignored in all of this, but it feeds back into so many interesting things like, like muscle tuning. But, but basically we, we did a lot of research on this at Salomon at a very high level. Um, and at great expense. And so we figure that we've actually got a reasonable handle on it now. But the, but the basic equation is that there's this large black hole, which is vibration, because you've got a whole lot of potential input loads. So you've got pressure, you've got force, you've got joint moments, you've got accelerations, um, and you've got vibration, which can have a magnitude and a frequency. Now, it seems like um, the vibration is probably responsible for about, about 25% of all input load. So it's a very large load, and it's extraordinary. It hasn't been looked at because basically, when you when you strike the ground, obviously you generate a shock wave, which is a vibration that goes through your whole system. Now, if you don't attenuate that vibration, that eventually will end up in your skull, which will vibrate, which means that you won't be able to see properly, and you won't be able to hear properly, and you'll probably fall over. So that's an extreme example, but that's basically what happens. So. Of course, being humans, having this incredible physiology, we've got systems in place that allow us to to attenuate that that shock going through our system. And the main way you do it is via muscle contraction. So if you have decent lean muscle mass, the muscles will the muscles when they contract will actually attenuate that vibration. So virtually none of it is transmitted above the knee. Okay, which you should be thinking now. That's very interesting because in road running, most of the injuries occur from the knee down, okay? So there's, the, the further down you go, the higher the level of vibration is gonna be, so the less it's attenuated. 
Um, so if you looked at, for example, the foot and ankle, well, there aren't too many muscles there that really can attenuate vibration. So you have very high levels of vibration at that level. So the only other thing you can do that's going to help is a shoe, right? So the, the shoe is the other piece of the jigsaw here that it can help. <clears throat> but getting back to muscle contraction, of course, the issue here is that if you're having to contract muscles to attenuate the vibration, what's going to happen over a 10K run? It's going to affect your fatigue. And what happens when you get fatigued is that you change the way you run, or you change your biomechanics. And then you may well be in a situation where you do have the window of opportunity for injury. So it, it may well be that vibration is actually a smoking gun. Um, and we don't know that for sure. But we've got some pretty strong suspicions that it's way more important than, than it's been given credit for. So, it's, no, really, yeah, it's something that's very exciting, which I, I, I don't know, I like to try and think I stay quite, I mean, I've got two little kids, so I'm not as hot as I was on the research and following everybody. But I like to think there's probably a few therapists out there involved in running who aren't as aware of it as they should be um so is this something that's gone up on i'm just thinking have you blogged about it and written about it where can they find more information on it um i've certainly lectured on it quite a bit um have i blogged on it i'm not sure i have actually on clinical at all um i honestly don't know about I, I i really don't know um oh. but i'll check it out and if it's not then i'll put it up there but look it's a very very interesting thing so mm. <clears throat> you know one of the, one of the one of the interesting things here is that what we're trying to do with footwear. So the big issue comes is when you actually have, um, so every human tissue has a has a, a, um, a vibration frequency and magnitude. So one of the interesting things is that when you have an input um, vibration, if it is close to or matches the tissue vibration, then you have a thing called resonance. And the human body really, really doesn't deal with resonance very well at all. So this is when we think that things like, um, tibial stress fracture could could actually be quite related to um, to vibration. But what we know for sure is that vibration does cause substantial tissue damage to bone, muscle, blood vessel and nerve. And we know this quite well because the guys who are out on the high street on a jackhammer all day, they get a specific condition in their arms, which is a Raynaud-like syndrome, and it shuts the blood supply down and it damages the nerves and it damages the muscles. And it's quite it's quite serious. So that's what vibration does. So, you know, we think that it is it is quite an important thing to look at. And we also know that you can uh, make pretty good inroads into it with uh, with with various footwear designs. OK, brilliant. No, I've, I've, uh, yeah. So, well, look, you've got to stick it up. Just would use this moment now just to remind people that a lot of um, information, well, priceless information they could get is on uh, Bartol Clinical, yeah, which is um, a certain amount Sorry, of it you can read. But... Say again. I can do a free ad. <laughs> it's uh, well, no, it's it's not. It's, it's I'm always trying to shout out places information where where it's uh, worth reading. But yeah, Bartol Clinical, isn't it? Where um, yeah. you sign up yeah. and well, it's a ridiculous amount of information. I mean, I'm, I must admit, I was on it for a long time. Then I think I don't know whether I talked to you or somebody else, but um, I tried playing the I've got two kids and no money card, and there was kind of <laughs> I don't play that card, mate. Come yeah. on. But I had well, to. It was like yeah, look, I don't, I don't buy that, Matt, because it's six. I know, I know. I'm sorry, but I just want to come out and just say that, yeah. Just in case you're looking for your memberships now. But anyway, for definitely for a therapist who's not aware of of the sort of things we're talking about, one of the definite pit stops you need to do. I'm not going to say how long you need to stay there for. Hopefully, you'll be a member for the rest of your life. But um, yeah, definitely check out Bartol Clinical uh, dot com, isn't it? 
yeah um loads of information on there um i think once you answered the question i put in there on uh, tread on shoes and things which was great so sometimes you do video responses there's up to date with the research so yeah go to place for runners uh, check it out we'll make sure that the uh, the website is on our comments leading us on to so salomon basically you were um headhunted to head their road running uh, range which was non-existent at the time and if I remember rightly, they kind of said they definitely gave you a very nice place to work from. I remember seeing some of the photos from your office. Thank you very much for that. Always makes me feel great. <laughs> but um, yeah, they gave you kind of like full reign and from what I hear, quite a large budget just to design a shoe. Um, so that might answer our question quite nicely. What it was the oh, lost it now predict, wasn't it? What, yeah, um, well, what talk actually, to us about that? Well, actually, the, uh, the first the first range we got over the over the line was called the Sonic, and yeah, I mean, look, it was an extraordinary experience, man. I mean, I, I when I got the phone call, um, which which I barely understood because the guy had an outrageous French accent, but I came to understand him pretty well in the end. But but when I got this telephone call, and they they basically said, listen, there's no baggage here because it doesn't exist. Do you want to do it? I mean, I, I I was out of the industry. I'd left ASICS, and I thought I never want to get back into this industry again. But that was just I mean, how could you possibly pass up on that? So, so I went there, and we we got this first range called the Sonic over over the line, and we really wanted to do, try and do something that was innovative, innovative because there was a bit of an innovation vacuum, and I was very interested in the effect of geometry. So I wasn't interested in putting stuff into shoes. I was interested in taking stuff out and making product that was focusing on weight targets, so very light. And looking at what you could actually do with the geometry of the shoe, because I had, I had an inkling that geometry was actually quite important rather than putting in, you know, bridges and stiff heel counters and all that sort of jazz. And that did lead us onto the shoe called the Predict, which um, is, I think, quite a unique shoe um, because it's unique because we, we based it on a shoe that radically decouples around the major joints of the foot. So in other words, what we tried to do is create a, a, a bottom unit, which is the midsole outsole, that provided specific um, platforms of support, no matter where you landed. So it didn't matter whether you're a midfoot, forefoot striker or whether you're a rear foot striker. Um, it, it was going to provide you a platform of support no matter where you landed. And it was going to decouple in a sense that we thought it could actually do something quite interesting biomechanically. So we, one of the great things about Salomon is they do proper biomechanics research and they publish it properly and they do it with a decent sample number. So they actually got together 24 people and we took this shoe into the lab and the results came back from our lead biomechanist who's a very clever lady called Marlene Giandolini. And we said, Marlene, that's complete nonsense. It can't possibly be right. Take it back in there. And the reason we didn't think it was right is that it was showing things like a 20% reduction in major hip load 20 percent i mean five percent would have been a lot but it was a lot lot so we sent it back in there and she did that four times and the results came back so then we said right now you're going to go back in there and do a gas analysis because we think there must be some penalty in terms of economy which she did and it made no difference but the really extraordinary thing was that we were seeing these changes in load proximally but with no penalty distally now that's that's against all the laws of physics, so it's actually impossible. So it's got to have gone somewhere, but we can't figure out where the hell it's gone. So <laughs> there's That's no doubt. Good. There's no doubt it's gone somewhere, but we don't know where. We just can't oh. identify it. 
That would that would so, get that would get on Craig Payne's wicks. He's always going on about how you can change where load goes and where it's distributed. But you've actually shown you can make twenty kind of you can make it disappear now. Oh no! Well, we think we don't know. We, we don't think we've made it disappear. We just we think <laughs> it, where it's gone. Yeah, you know, hope, hopefully it hasn't gone anywhere where it might cause any damage. But that that is the very unusual thing about this shoe. And um, you know, apart from the fact that's very interesting, um, the the real joy for me was in being able to I think build a shoe that we could fairly conclusively establish that you don't need to be building a very rigid very hard shoe i mean this is a very flexible shoe um and it's completely based around the concept that if you change the geometry of the shoe then you you will, will probably get a very good result in fact we also looked at its dare i say anti-pronation qualities against major competitors it's a very stable shoe but it's a very flexible shoe and it has virtually no heel counter and it has no stuff in the shoe and it weighs 240 grams. So, you know, it's it, it's an interesting concept. And it's something that I, I really want to um, sort of continue because, you know, in trail running, it's always surprised me that trail running shoes are made like good old-fashioned running shoes and they're very angular. But if you think about that, if you're running across the fall line, of course, your, your uphill foot is going to be pronating and your downhill foot is going to be supinating. And that's going to be exacerbated if you've got a very angular midsole so the whole thing should be radically should radically rounded. Uh, it, there's no other there's no other sensible solution so so you really should be radically rounding the contours of the shoe which is exactly what nike are doing now with their basketball product which i just take my hat off to nike they obviously think things through properly and if you know if i'd gone to a podiatry community five years ago and said all basketball shoes should be heavily rounded they would have said no they're going to sprain their ankles for sure but when you think about it it's all about the surface contact area with the court and if it's rounded because they're very rarely plantar grade they're very rarely flat on their feet and they're always on the angle then it makes much more sense for the contours to be rounded i mean that's geometry that's the way it works so how because the other difficult thing is how are you getting this information across to to the to the buyer to the purchaser what sort of information are you putting on boxes because traditionally you'd have your over pronator under pronator over supinator what tech or what terminology are you using now to help educate the person who's deciding whether or not to buy this shoe? Uh, well, we're not. Everybody <laughs> 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 thinks I'm mad, but um, uh, no. Look, it's a really good question because you know I think I think now we are we are drilling down to the point where this is obviously becoming an educational process that we've been talking about it for too long. Um, and we are slowly making headway. So in, in the, you know, podiatry, physiotherapy, clinical sports medicine communities, people are talking about it more. In retail, the, the really informed retail guys have totally bought into the concept that you can't define pronation. And so a, a less is more approach to footwear is probably the correct way to go. Um, you know, there's still going to be – I look at a shoe like the Brooks Beast, and I'm not calling it out for any other reason other than it's a unique shoe. But I've been saying for a long, long time now, that's a one in 1,000 runner shoe at best. Mm. There are, it's just not not appropriate for very many people. <coughs> but, yeah. And yet still handed yeah. out probably by default if you're a big runner. Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I was in America a couple of years ago and I went to a store in Pasadena and they employed a bloke full time. And his job was to go around to all the local podiatrists in the, in the area, in the Pasadena area, and they sold 250 pairs of Brooks Beasts a month. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll give you yeah. some idea of, of the level. It's not just the level of education at retail. It's if if the if the prescribers are not understanding that this is inappropriate, mm. well, then you know we can't we can't get to the end game basically. So with that in mind, because this is another thing which I think you'll be able to put across. I think the main reason, I mean, it's such a strong selling point, the idea that if you're heavier, you're going to need more cushioning, which is basically why they'll bring out this kind of like big cushion shoe. But can you kind of explain, again, kind of using layman technology, why you might not necessarily need or why more cushioning on the shoe might not necessarily help you, even if you're a big guy or something? Yeah. Well, so so there, there, are, two, there are two main tenants that, athletic footwear has been built on for the past 40 years. One is that you would need motion control if you were pronated, and the second that you would need cushioning um, to uh, to help you help protect you from the, the impact of hitting the ground, okay? And that if you, if you bought into that argument that both those things would protect you from injury. So I'm going to look straight in the camera and say right now that there's not a shred of evidence to support either of those concepts that a motion control is going to protect you from injury or that increased cushioning is going to protect you from injury. Not one single shred of evidence to support that. So I think cushioning is quite important from a comfort perspective um, and it's quite important from a re rebound perspective. But we know, and we've known since 1977 when Ben O'Neill first published data on this, that if you put a highly cushioned shoe on, it will probably increase the vertical ground reaction force because it's going to change your lower limb stiffness. Now, a lay audience won't understand that, but basically if you think of the lower limb as a spring, when you go from a softer surface onto a harder surface, the spring becomes more compliant, in other words, more stretchy. And when you go from a harder surface onto a softer surface, it becomes less compliant, so there's less stretch in the spring. And this is all, this is all driven by the supercomputer in your head called the brain, and it happens within 50 milliseconds of you striking the ground. So this is where this concept that cushioning is somehow super important to the health and well-being of the athlete, especially in relation to injury, is just not true. I had to put you on uh, main screen for that because it's such an important point to get across. I think clinicians can take it on board. And in fact, clinicians really get off on this idea that the central governor is kind of measuring every single step and adjusting the tension in the muscles according to the feedback. It's lovely. But for the general punter out there looking for a shoe, it just kind of makes too much sense, doesn't it? And like you say, it results in these yeah. massive big shoes being sold to somebody who weighs over like a, you know, yeah. 90 kilos. It's tricky. but it it's, a, it's a convenient truth, really. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I think I'd put forward a, and Ben, I, I mean, I've spoken with Ben a lot about this, that for the bigger guys, you know, we could have, then have the discussion about viscosity and whether you need less or more viscous materials, which is different to cushioning. Um, but I, you could put together the argument. So, well, a bigger a bigger guy or girl um, actually needs a more stiff shoe rather than a less stiff shoe. So, to, to actually put them in a highly cushioned shoe, I think, is the wrong thing to do. Mm. Um, and, and that would bring us into a whole discussion about futurism, which is you know coming fast, basically. Which people will have to go to uh, the uh, RCL International Running Conference in October the 30th, 31st, and Brian to hear about, because I'm sure that will be part of your presentation there. We're telling him nothing now. <laughs> so um, brilliant. So cushioning we've covered. We've covered pronation. Um, we've covered um, a lot of traditional concepts about shoes, which both therapists and definitely runners need um, kind of uh, education on. Um, 
the other thing that I wanted you to comment on with your experience was this thing. Oh, yeah, it was a recap. Another thing that doesn't make enough of uh, people don't talk about enough is the last of a shoe. Um, I've heard you before talking about that and coming up with some, which I think will shock quite a few people. There's this idea that um, different, like three different types of last, depending on, again, categorizing runners into different kind of how much the arch, medial arch drops. And your bombshell when it comes to kind of the last, which is used um, in construction shoes is? Well, yeah. I mean, if I was in your room and you started talking about three different types of last based on arch height, I'd, I'd be I'd be compelled to smack you in the back of the head. Yeah, um, that's why I do these. Um, yeah. Remotely. yeah and it, it makes me fairly froth at the mouth when I hear all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, to put some context to all of this is, you know, we've been told that that you should choose a shoe based on either whether it's curved, semi-curved, or straight-lasted. Well, well, the horrible truth in the industry is that there's no such thing as semi-curved, straight, or curved last. And I, I can give you an example from ASICS where I worked for many years that they have one last for all of their running product. It's called EOR16. And all of their main running product, with the exception of racing shoes, are built from that one last. And the only way they make a shoe look more or less curved is just by simply sculpting the EVA in the midsole. So there is no change at all to the function of the shoe based on the last because the last is the same. So just to make sure that everyone understands, because I can already hear a few people kind of listening to podcasts going, what's talking about last? Explain in basic terms what the last is, essentially. Okay, so the last is the three-dimensional model that the shoe is built from. So it's an actual physical model that is foot-like um, and it's usually these days it's normally made out of plastic or resin and what actually happens is that that the last is a three-dimensional structure and the process of building the shoe is called lasting so you you wrap the upper around the last and you attach it at the bottom somehow and then you plug on the bottom unit which is the midsole and the outsole and that's the process of shoe building so the last is the model Lasting is the process, and there are many different ways that you can that you can um, uh, you can execute lasting. But but Matt, all of this is going to be completely irrelevant very soon because what's what's going to happen is you're going to go and see your friendly podiatrist or physiotherapist, physiotherapist, and they're going to take all your biometric data and they're going to put it upline to a factory in Taiwan and they're going to build you your last and they're going to do it for eighty euro. Um, and then you will have your shoe built from that last. Yeah, so expand on that. I've, I heard you um, the other day talking about that. Yeah, tell us some more details about that. Um, well, this is this is actually happening right now. So this is this is entirely possible. So one of the one of the issues we've always had with the last is that a last looks similar to a foot, but it, it's also completely dissimilar. So. All modern lasts are completely flat on the bottom because when it comes to stitching, um, the, the manufacturing process requires a flat bottom. Now, this has changed quite recently because um, we have new manufacturing techniques that allow us to actually build a last that looks like a foot. So in other words, it's completely rounded on the bottom and it looks anatomical and you can you can punch in all sorts of other things, which we'll talk about in a sec. But the beauty of this is it means that rather than you having um, certain, I guess, for want of a better word, load points um, on a flat bottom shoe, you've now got full contact. So it has massive implications in terms of how the foot sits inside the shoe. It has massive implications in terms of this word that I don't like much, stability. It has massive implications in terms of pressure distribution. 
So all of this can be done right now, um, today. I could do this for you right now. Um, so it's a very exciting time to, to come. I think in terms of what will happen with, with lasting, I told you that ASICs have one last. I think what will probably happen is in the very near future, they'll probably have a library of maybe 100 or 150 lasts. And, and your retail store or, or your, your sports clinician will make a decision based on what they've seen in you. And they say, Rightio, well, Matt needs last number 49. And they'll send that data. And that, that is the last that will be used for you. So I think that that's not the realm of science fiction that's happening right now, um, and I think that's going to I think that's going to uh, accelerate quite rapidly. So does that mean that is this something you can see? I mean, is the whole kind of way that shoes are sold going to have to change? Because that sounds a bit technical for kind of your Sports Direct. No offense to any of the staff at Sports Direct. In fact, any kind of mass shoe shop. Are they going to be able to work with that kind of technology or does it, does it mean people are going to go somewhere else to get their shoes? Well, it's a very controversial question, isn't it? That's uh, what I, we do here on Unpet Live. <laughs> well, I think, I think there are two points here. I think, I think the, first, the first point is that people need to get their head around the, the benefits of the future um, and how it, how it reflects with the way they practice now or the way they sell shoes now. The answer is unless a sports director or, or something like that radically changes the way they train their staff and radically changes the way they think about it, they're not going to be selling too many shoes. Really technical retail who will embrace this will sell a lot more shoes. But the maybe the, the podiatrists and physios who are thinking who are sitting there right now, they'll be thinking this sounds like an opportunity for I say two hundred two thousand retail doors shut because of e commerce. Two thousand retail doors. That just doesn't go away. I mean, it's going to be picked up somewhere. And I think that I, I would expect that podiatry practices and physiotherapy practices will be picking up this slack because they won't have to carry stock. You don't have to be a shoe store, but you will be selling shoes. Uh, and I think that's that's the, that's the blinding reality of it. Now, that's going to be terrifying to some retail, but I can probably scare the pants off podiatry as well because I can tell you with a reasonable degree of certainty is that in the world of athletic footwear, the shoe will become the orthotic without any shadow of doubt. So orthotic therapy, as we know it, is probably going to disappear um, with the exception of um, the non-sports arena where I think it will always be around. But the, 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 the capability, the ability for the shoe to make the changes that we can do with an orthotic device now in terms of changing a load or changing a force or changing a moment, we can do that right now in terms of uh, inserting 3D printed matrixes into footwear. So that's, I mean, that's here right now. It's coming coming fast. I feel like we're kind of letting out some bombshells here now. I feel quite, yeah. Is this going to be news for a lot of, how many, we haven't got time now, but I, I mean, my bio, I'm a sports therapist by trade, so I'm mixed with other, and, and, and in the clinic I work out, there's other physios. We normally have one podiatrist who's actually changed quite a few times. I think podiatrists struggle in the private sector. They come from NHS and then think it's going to be rosy in the private and don't realise how much they have to kind of market themselves. I don't know what it is, but they seem to come and go quite quickly. But I sometimes struggle with podiatrists working with them because I still see an awful lot of them old school, like looking at the kinematics. I kind of say hi and greet them. I drop a few names like yourself and and kind of Craig and 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 Ian and and judging by who they look at and who they know and where they hang out, I kind of get an idea whether they're still going to be looking at people's kind of 
arch drop and working old school or whether they're actually going to be interested in the kinetics is there still quite a big knowledge gap with i mean it's difficult for you to comment on the uk but let's say in australia for example is there kind of a big division between old school and new school in terms of podiatry I look, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm sure if it was Griff or, or Craig here as well, we'd we'd all agree and say, look, there's a there's a real divide here, and um, you know, I think that there, there look, I mean, there, there to, for me, there, there's no doubt there's the potential to exploit a therapy um, because you can make a lot of money out of it, and that's that's just that's just a that's a reality. I mean, there's not there's no way of hiding from that. I think there's a lot of podiatrists now who are really thinking about how they change the way they practice based on the evidence, and that's just a, an incredibly positive and incredibly brave thing to do. Um, you know, so the, the old days where everybody, every second patient walked out the door with an orthotic device, I think for for a lot of people now that has that's changed radically. But there are still a lot of people who have a vested interest in clinging to the way they practice, and that's terribly difficult to change because that practice is paying their mortgage. And um, I'm not sure how you want yeah. that. It's a tricky one because I don't know. I don't know. Since having kids, I've become more kind of, I don't know, am I less cynical? I don't know. But I honestly believe that, okay, there's a select few in all of our industries, in all the areas who just do it because they can make a load of money. And they might even know that they're, what they're selling. Every time they put up, the Cairo puts up their X-ray, marking it with a big red circle and saying, oh, this is your problem here, but I can fix mm-hmm. it kind of thing. They know what they're doing. Yeah. I think there's an awful lot in our in healthcare providers who still don't realise that they're just think, not getting the education. Yeah, I look, I think we, we need to be very careful too here that we're not um, orthotic bashing because, you know, I'd be really happy to go on record and say I think it's tremendously valuable therapy and I think it's I think it works in the right hands. It, it, it works really, really well. And there's a huge amount of evidence to support that. Um, one of the problems we have with the research, and you probably heard Craig talking about this a bit, is that, you know, the research never really takes into account the dosage factor of orthotic devices, and this is why often you'll see, you know, a custom-built device compared to an over-the-counter device, and it's not its not even a remotely reasonable comparison to make because you're not defining the dosage. Mm. And and you do, you know, good practitioners understand that, they're, that you're not trying to change the angle of the dangle, you're trying to unload a structure, you're trying to, you're trying to change what, you're trying to change the reason that structure's loaded. So I'd hate to come across as being anti-orthotic because I'm not at all. What I what I what I do struggle with is I do struggle with you know certain um, change. There's one very famous chain in um, in the USA retail chain, and their stated practice is that everybody, every single person, needs an orthotic device. Now that's yeah. that's just not, that's just not true, and and that's and that is their sell-on policy that that their staff are required to try to sell everybody an over-the-counter device once they've sold on a pair of shoes. Um, and that, to, and I have written about this, and that to me represents a, a really huge issue for the community, and and with with uh, you know with uh, with with retail, that particular branch of retail in particular. Yeah, no, it's to be see it the same with manual therapy, where you, it's the business model is every single patient that comes to the door, runner, they're going to need six sessions. And you're like, well, how can you say that? How do you know they're gonna they might just need me to say, look, you're fine, you're okay, just you know, alternate your mm-hmm. days running to take a day from between. See ya. But it's yeah. it's they just fear the business model, don't they? They just can't think of the alternative. It's a tricky well, yeah, one. Or they, or they don't or they don't want to. Maybe they have thought about the alternative and they're scared by that. And I, and I you know mm. 
a part of my brain can completely understand that, but a part of my brain would also tell me that it's not particularly ethical to be behaving that way. Um, and so I think you look. You have to. You have to. Um, you have to not be completely hamstrung by the evidence, but you do have to. You have to at least try to understand what it's telling you. And and a life is fluid. You know, if you can't if you can't change, well, then you're not going to get anywhere. So you've got to think about what what you need to do. That's that's a beautifully. Uh, that's. I think I've got something in my eye. Hold on, just get rid of that. Beautiful <laughs> words, mate. <laughs> That's going to be. Uh, you've come out with a few corkers today, which I think you can stick on your. Uh, yeah, on your tombstone. Beautiful. Well, look, it's um, it's two thirty. So that is amazing. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat throughout, without lying. Um, I, I remember it. The clock turned two, and I was like, "Still got half an hour with this guy. This is great." So obviously, as always, we could talk on forever, but that's uh, that's it. That's an hour's gone. Um, is there anything uh, you would like to mention um, in terms of? I mean, what were you doing? You're traveling around a lot, doing workshops, and what are you particularly doing at the moment? Oh uh, yes, yeah, so I'm on my way up to um, Manchester for the Biomechanics Summer School, which um, which I'm very lucky. I got invited to again this year, and there's a really good um, faculty. Ben O's coming across. Um, Famous podiatrist and friend of mine, Kevin Kirby from the USA, and um, a guy called Peter Bruckner, who's an who's an Aussie um, sports physician, who is a very interesting guy. So he's um, he's in particular talking about um, nutrition, which is his he's uh, very much in the Tim Noakes school of nutrition, and uh, so I'll be very interested to hear what he's got to say. So yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, then I'm heading over to Canada for the International Society of Biomechanics meeting next month, which will be good. So yeah, there's a bit on. Brilliant, fantastic. I think in the people who are watching, who I'm, sometimes I'll say hello to people as they comment, but um, I was just too, uh, I just didn't want to miss anything you were saying, basically. But yeah, there's some, uh, I think Matt Hart is joining you all in Manchester as well. I think I saw him talking to Kevin yep. uh, earlier on. So thanks for joining us, Matt. Andrew thanks, as well. I think uh, Andrew's coming along to the conference definitely in uh, October. So we'll be able to meet you all then. Um, Ultra Mirage. Um, who um, 100k desert run? Who um, I'm going to have the pleasure of going over to, not compete in this year, but oh, I'm dangerously close to making it a bucket list for next year. But I'm I haven't said that out loud yet. But I'm going along this year to watch it and soak it up. But um, have you got anything on your bucket list in terms of sport and stuff? I mean, you've been through everything, haven't you? You're a water skier. You are. Yeah, my my main goal at the moment is just to stay above ground, mate. Um, <laughs> well, we were talking before that you know we've we've both got young children, which is a, a remarkable thing for a man of my advanced years. But yeah, so so the goal is really just to be able to kick a footy and run around with them. But yeah, look, I, I, I just really like I, I would I, my goal for this year is actually to try to get a lot fitter than I am right now, and there's obviously quite a quite a large room for improvement there. Um, but I don't have any real plans of um, of doing any events um, as such. So I'm very happy to come and watch you run a hundred miles in the desert. K, and, K kilometers. Oh, K, get it right. yeah, it's a big important distinction once you get past 50. Yeah. I don't know. That's all on the top of my head. Just talking. I'd like, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, um, that's a long way off. So mate, thank you so much again, uh, especially with your busy um, itinerary and you've been up since four o'clock. I really appreciate it. And uh, and also thanks for agreeing to be part of the uh, conference coming up um, this October. Oh, so really, um, yeah, really. if people want to contact you, you uh, your name changes a bit. So does your icon. You're Ben Stiller in some parts of the world, it seems. But, um, 
Where, what's the best place for people to contact you? Um, yeah, they can contact me through um, through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Uh, they're the main platforms I use, um, or or through the website. There's a there's a direct email address through the website. But uh, I'm really looking website being www.bartoldclinical.com. Okay. Um, so they can get in touch with me there. Um, the the uh, the uh, Instagram handle is um, bartold dot underscore clinical no not dot bartold underscore clinical and twitter is just um at bartold biomecha not biomechanica biomecha but thank you so much for having me matt i'm really looking forward to that conference in october i mean there's uh, there's names there that i i'm just really looking forward to meeting these people izzy moore jack chu uh, i've never met jf so um, oh, really oh fantastic that'd be great no yeah get in the same room with these people and and thrash it out it'd be really good I'm sure they're feeling the same way. Okay, mate. Um, I will say goodbye now and uh, we'll talk soon. Good on you. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks so much. Take Enjoy care. a nice, peaceful, restful day. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye. All right, guys. That was brilliant. Oh, wow. Oh, quite emotional. Um, yeah, what a great, what a lovely guy and um, what a wealth of, of, of knowledge and information and experience. And um, like I say, there's people who've been around for a long time and they, you know, some of them are. It's not doesn't necessarily mean all the information that comes out of your mouth is is blessed, but Simon is one of the uh, true um, legends who is uh, yeah he's been there, done it, and he's evolved. He's a great role model for therapists who are worried about evolving, as he admitted himself. But so yeah, um, he's one of the speakers who will be with us. I'm so excited in October in Brighton, um, in my hometown. Funny that that I arranged it in my hometown, uh, but along with Jack Chu, as he mentioned, along with Jeff Scudia from Canada. Um, also got Chris Johnson, who's coming all the way from the States, which is fantastic, from Zero PT Performance. Um, Izzy Moore, he mentioned, is a fantastic researcher um, from Cardiff. We've got um, Mike James, the endurance physio, who's, who's fantastic as well. He's coming from uh, Wales uh, to talk to us. Derek Griffin is going to be there, which is amazing. Um, uh, fantastic, influential player online, amazing runner himself. Uh, so he's going to be there as well. We've got uh, Paul Westwood, um, triathlete, um, uh, coach and runner, works particularly with the Army. Uh, Paul Coker, medical director of Rock Tape, and also um, he's got his own clinic um, in Cornwall. And again, a massive player in terms of looking at the evidence and providing evidence-based treatment. Um, who have I missed out out of the 10 off the top of my head? Ian Griffiths. I always forget Ian Griffiths. Little Ian. Not tiny Alex Horn, but little Ian Griffiths. Uh, no, major name, sports podiatrist Ian Griffiths, who's coming um, all the way from London. Uh, but I'm so pleased as well because he's been my go-to guy for years and years and years and years when it comes um, to um, the uh, foot side of uh, running-related injury informants. So, yeah, I think I said 10. Um, all details are online. Tickets are on sale now. Um if you need any help with ticket prices, I just want people to come. OK, I have to put a ticket price. But if there's any reason where you think you convince me why I should give you a discount, maybe there's a few of you. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're an OAP. I don't know. Whatever the reason is, then feel free to contact me if you're struggling with money. For me, I'm not looking to make a profit out of it. I just want to pay for my time. I need to pay the guests who are coming over and the plane fares from Australia and stuff in Canada and, and the States, which are mounting up. But 
Um, so if there's any way that I can help put bums on seats, I just want you to be there and enjoy it and, and, and learn stuff and be able to share it with the runners who you go back to work with. Then, yeah, feel free to email me, matt at runchatlive.com. Um, give me a reason and I'll be happy to give you a discount. Yeah. Um, right. That's it. I've got to go now. It's Father's Day. I've got um, I've got a massage waiting for me, which my wife and family were kind enough because my shoulder's been playing up. So I'm going to go and have a little bit of a uh, massage on that. So it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for all your support. Do please try and share uh, the conference details and the podcast. Um, I worry so much about just not reaching people. Um, my social media is just a drop in the ocean. So I really depend on people who follow me to tell their friends just to get the word out there. So do please share, share, share. Uh, we'll be back next week with, oh, who's next week? We're going to be on every week now. Um, let me just check. Dun, dun, dun. Every Sunday we're going to be here now and lead up to summer. Next week is the one and only Christopher Johnson, triathlete extraordinaire, Zero PT performance in the running zone uh, on uh, Facebook. Uh, Chris Johnson will be in the house. Um, definitely join us for that. Okay. See you next Sunday. Um, that will be what time is Chris on at? That'll be at four o'clock UK time because he's going to be from the States. So next Sunday, four o'clock, put it in your diary. I've got to go. See you later. Adios. You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance.